I'm about to take an unusual risk for me. I'm going to sing. Now, my wife is going to tell you this is a terrible idea, and it probably is. But I'm going to sing a song for you. I didn't grow up in a Protestant upbringing, so there's plenty of songs I didn't learn as a kid. Most of you will know this, and I want you to tell me what the missing words are, okay? Hmm and hmm. Hmm and hmm, there's a fouting flowing hmm and hmm. This is the song that I have sung all week long. I can't get it out of my mind because this morning as we open Acts chapter 9, you'll see a fountain flowing deep and wide. And as you do, it's my hope, in fact, it's my prayer that as we walk away, We will walk away this morning with a firm belief that the fountain runs far deeper than we can imagine, and that the fountain runs far wider than we will ever be comfortable with, that there is a fountain flowing deep and wide. We are in a teaching series in the book of Acts. We've called our series Empowered considering how, just like the disciples were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be His ambassadors, to be His witnesses, to build His kingdom, you too have been empowered. Each and every one of you. So that as we've been walking through the book of Acts, we've been looking at this, hoping that we'd pick up that point that God uses His people. That his intention in the church is not that there'd be some guy standing in front of you doing the work. No, if we lean into that, Ephesians 4 would tell you that my job is to encourage you, to build you up, to train you so that you will build his kingdom. That's what the Bible testifies to us. So we've been walking through Acts, helping to give you these pictures of normal people living out the gospel in their normal lives so we'd be encouraged and we'd be edified and we'd be exhorted by their examples. To this part, we've been walking slowly through Acts. I want to forecast this for you now that we're about to start picking up our pace in Acts, to pick up bigger themes. Because as we keep moving at this pace, you'd find it would get incredibly repetitive, which would neither be fun for you or for me. Not that fun is our aim, but just you know we're going to pick up our pace. Um, So you would know that. This morning in Acts 9, we'll see two testimonies. One that will push us to see the deep, to see the depth of the gospel. And the other one that will push us to see the wide, the width of the gospel, and maybe you'll walk around this whole week singing deep and wide. Turn with me to Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, you will know him later, you'll know him better as Paul, the same guy who wrote 13 books in the New Testament, the only one who wrote more in length was Luke, the guy who wrote Luke and Acts, So both of these guys, it's important for us to get at at different points in their life, did not believe in Jesus. Saul here actually fights Jesus. We'll lean into that this morning. But this is a picture of Saul before he believes in Jesus. This is, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest 
and ask him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, by the way, that's what Christians were called early on, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound, tied up to Jerusalem. Now Luke has already introduced Saul to us. We saw him in Acts 7, witnessing the death of Stephen. In fact, in Acts 8, he nodded the whole time, approving of Stephen's death, the event that really started escalating persecution of the church. Which is to say this, at this point, Saul is not a follower of Jesus Christ. We could pick up our Bible and look at some of these guys and think that Paul probably grew up in a great Christian home and had great Christian parents and he was probably a disciple and we would be wrong. No, Saul was utterly against the gospel. He was utterly against the work of Jesus. You might say he was a zealous religious fanatic. You might even go so far as calling him one of the most evil men in the Bible, and you'd be right. He has a sin list that is exceedingly long. Let's consider Paul's own testimony. We'll find in the book of Acts, he gives it two other times in chapter 22 and again in 26. And in Acts 26, 11, this is what Paul says of himself. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is Paul's explanation to you of the fullness of his rage to persecute Christians. To put it bluntly, he was a terrorist of the worst sorts in this moment. In Galatians 1, Paul writes this of himself. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Do you see the path Saul is on? This isn't an encouraging one. This is one to tell you and to make plain to you that any background you may have in sin, Saul wins the fight. In fact, I'd suggest that None of us have a sin background to compete with him. Now as we lean into this, we'll argue that that kind of sin doesn't matter near as much as we think it does. But there's a point here in the Scriptures that if God could redeem Saul, God can redeem anybody. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. He can redeem anyone. Paul says, I was violently pursuing and destroying the church. This is the path that he's on as he approaches Damascus in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. He's going here for the purpose of bounding up Christians, binding them that they would be persecuted, jailed, and potentially murdered. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Now for a moment, I want you to think about this from Saul's perspective. I want you to think about how this would have sounded like to Saul. Because Saul thought he was a prudent defender of God. He thought he was following God. He thought he was doing God's will. And yet God knew differently. God declares, I'm not leading you. I'm not behind you. In fact, God will further say, I'm taking it personally, your sin. Now we have to consider that in our modern inclusivist world, don't we? That God can look at something and say, this isn't right. That there is an objective truth and that my son is it. See, we live in a world where anybody can believe anything they want as long as you subscribe to it, I'm supposed to be fine with it. Friends, the Bible would call that worthless idolatry. Not popular today, but it's true. God has an opinion. And when people start practicing something that's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, God wants to step into that and say, Whoa! This isn't the truth. God steps in to confront a man here for his erroneous practice of a faith, and he took it personally. Verse 5. And he said, this is Saul, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. I really wish we could hear their testimony, to be honest with you. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. As for three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now imagine that. Saul, going to Damascus probably praying about going to Damascus with the hope of coming in victorious and dragging lame people out, comes into this city lame. As we started the message this morning, I told you that we called this message the gospel deep and wide. This is the deep part. Because I want you to appreciate this part of the message. Because it's not merely that Saul was a sinner. Because Saul was a sinner. In fact, he was a sinner of an awful sort. He was physically, emotionally, and psychologically abusing people. But worse than that, he was abusing them because of the name of Jesus. So if there's anyone, anyone in the entire universe that should have been really ticked off about this, really vengeful about this, really seeking revenge, it should have been Jesus. Right? Because this isn't just sin, this is awful, bad sin and done specifically because of His name. But rather than showing up to condemn Him, to judge Him, Jesus confronts him and confronts him with the most unexpected tool. Grace. 
Friends, there's no such thing as a sinner too gone for salvation. My second year of ministry in Young Life, I lived in Sherman, Texas. I started hanging out around this group of guys and built relationships with them. A lot of them played soccer and so began to hang out more and more. Well, I built a relationship with these two guys. Their names were John and Ryan. Uh, they were kind of hooligans in the high school. Uh, they were known to cause a lot of trouble, but there was something about them that I really clicked with. So I began to invite them into our Bible study. If you're not familiar with Young Life, Young Life literally exists to reach out to kids who are unchurched, to kids who wouldn't normally go to church. And when I got to know these guys, just based on who they were, it was pretty clear they were unchurched. Well, as they started coming around and getting more involved with me, I'll be honest, they were really rough kids. In fact, they made Bible study really hard and really frustrating. Ryan would later confess to me that he would spend time on Tuesday nights trying to think of questions he didn't think I could answer. Hard stuff. Trying to make me look like an idiot in front of these other kids. One of the strategies of Young Life is to take kids to camp. So I invited John and Ryan to camp, and on the second day of camp signups, they signed up. And I was pretty giddy about it. Now, I'll give all of that to you as a background to tell you that the day after they signed up, I got the, one of the strangest phone calls leading to one of the strangest meetings I've ever had. Because I get a phone call, and the next afternoon, the youth pastor of a church and two of their elders show up in my office to confront me about inviting these two kids to camp. And this is what they have to say. Those kids have been to our church, and they always cause problems. This is the quote. And they've lost the right to hear the gospel. Now, I have no doubt that those kids were a pain, because I'd felt it. But for anybody, anybody, to declare that anybody has lost the right to hear the gospel is astounding to me. In fact, it decries of a legalism, of Phariseeism, where we look at ourselves as people who are above sin. So we categorize it as if everyone must perform in order to come to know Jesus. Friends, that's antithetical to the gospel. It's in direct opposition to the gospel. The gospel, in its very nature, declares that none of us is good enough. Not even one of us can perform to God's standard. So should it be shocking that these guys were this way? No! No one loses the right to hear the gospel. No one. We can't even afford to think that about people. If Jesus will reach out and extend grace to Paul, then he can reach out and extend it to anyone. I should tell you that Ryan and John went to camp with me. Ryan was a pain in my... You get it. The whole week. A year and a half later, I got a call from him. He accepted Christ. He's now a youth pastor in Washington, D.C. There's irony in the gospel. There's a reality that we need to consider. That salvation is not about the quantity or about the quality of our sin that is forgiven. Let me say that again. Salvation is not about the quantity 
or about the quality of the sin that we've committed that can be forgiven. That's a theological error. No, salvation declares to us that we were dead and that we are made alive in Christ. We can't make the mistake of making it about sin because when we do, we make it a moral problem. What Saul needed was to act better. What Ryan and John needed was to act better. They needed better performance. Friends, what the gospel declares to us is not that we have a moral problem, but that we have a life problem. We are dead. And Jesus makes us alive. You've been around the church for a while. You've heard my pet peeve. Ooh, I think I just got like Siri or somebody responding. If you've been a while, you've heard me say this. One of my pet peeves is Christians who believe they've got a terrible testimony. Friends, if you grew up here and have spent every dear day of your life here, praise the Lord. The issue with that is not that you didn't commit enough sin to make your story worthwhile. For when you testify to that, you say the quantity or the quality of sin is what matters for salvation. You're downplaying what God did in your life. For if all you ever did was steal an extra cookie or some other trivial natured sin, you were dead and your heart was wicked. It was just expressed differently. You didn't have a moral problem. You weren't not sinning enough. You were acting out your deadness. And what you needed was the same thing that Saul needed, was the same thing that Ryan and John needed. You need to be made alive in Christ. Friends, I have no doubt that we all know people who believe that Jesus can't forgive them for what they've done. They believe that they have sinned too much. They believe that they have sinned too greatly. And in fact, I'd push it so far to say, as I bet we've got a couple here this morning that think that. That think it's about a moral problem. It's about acting better. Friends, let me remind you from your Bible that David, a man after God's own heart, was an adulterer. He was a murderer. That's the short list. We could go on for a long time. Rahab was quite literally a prostitute and was also the great-great-grandmother of David. And if you'd let me say great 17 times, we could make her the grandmother of Jesus. This is Jesus' family line. This is his heritage. These are the people that he chose to, to be descended from. Peter denied Jesus three times to his face. You study the Scriptures, you'd find that calling ridiculous sinners to Himself is nearly Jesus' M.O. It's His most common practice. And I suspect if we took the time, we could get testimonies of many amongst us who've been in and walked in pretty ridiculous sin. I should hear about 20 amens. Wasn't expecting it from Nick. God saves sinners. It's what He does. 
The Word of God testifies to us, Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Are your sins removed? Are all of them removed? Yes. And how far are they removed? As far as from the east is from the west, you no longer bear them. Why? Because the fountain is deeper than you can imagine. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. When God says let us reason together, that's His way of telling you you're wrong, He's right, and He's going to explain it to you. But this is what He wants to argue with you. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They're red like crimson. They shall become like wool. God seems to suggest that you're not going to totally get the depth or the nastiness of your sin, nor the beauty of your redemption. So He wants to reason with you. Friends, your sin is way nastier and filthier than you can ever, ever imagine. And yet His redemption is full. It shall be white as snow. This is one of the great blessings of living this far north. When you get home today, take a picture of your front yard. And then take another one in January. And when we get a good snow, you will not be able to see anything. You know why? Because God wants you to have a picture and an understanding of Isaiah 118. Though your sins may be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And right now, my, my picture of my front yard with all the spots where my kids are digging holes in my front yard and, and, and causing my grass not to grow where I want and I fighting all the weeds and my yard looks really poor. God covers it all in a blanket. And it's beautiful and it's precious. That's the blessing of living this far north. We would get that picture of grace. I love it when it snows. Because it reminds me of God's Grace and His ability to cover all of my junk. There's a fountain that flows and it's deeper than you can imagine. If you've ever struggled with, can God forgive me? Absolutely He can. You're not even in question. It's not even close. There are people who sin in the Bible, and I think that's why this is true, who will put your sin to shame. But let's not make it a sin game. There's a fountain, and it runs deeper than you can imagine. And it also runs wider than you'll ever know. Verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, here I am, Lord. You think this is probably going to go a pretty good place. In fact, the more I study this, the more I think, Ananias is thinking, hey, I'm going to get some blessings. Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias who come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Friends, let's put this in perspective. Ananias is just a man. And we don't know much about him. 
He wasn't a disciple. We don't even know that he was a disciple of a disciple. We just know that somewhere, somehow, he became a believer and he happened to live in Damascus. Much like the testimony throughout the book of Acts, he's just like you and he's just like me. He believes in Jesus. He has the Holy Spirit and God has a desire to use him just like you and me. And God calls him to go looking for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Think about that perspective. Because I'm pretty sure this is the New Testament equivalent of telling you to reach out to ISIS. Literally. This is the wide part of the Gospel. That it's wider than you are comfortable with. That God will call us to seek not only those who are like us, but more so those who are not like us. Push on it further. Those who might oppose us. Push it further. Those who might harm us. That's the width of the Gospel. Is it supposed to make you feel uncomfortable? Yes. Because it's in those moments when you embrace the width of the Gospel that you don't stand on your foundation, but you stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ to proclaim what He did. That what He did is for all people, regardless of what they've done, regardless of how you feel about it or who they are. There is a width of the Gospel. It is wider than you are comfortable with. Let's see how this plays out. Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the high priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias cries out, God, this may not be safe for me. God, are you sure? Ananias puts his idolatry of safety before the Lord and says, God, you care about this? You care about my health? Do you care about my well-being? I don't know if Ananias has a wife. I don't know if he has kids. I don't know who depends on Ananias. Is he a small business owner that employs people? I don't know. God, you care about any of this. My life is in jeopardy. What are you calling me to do? The Gospel's wider than you're comfortable with. Verse 15, the Lord says to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God doesn't respond to his need for safety. God says, I'm enough. Go and, and be obedient. I have a plan for this man. And it involves you. Go and seek him out. Friends, don't miss this. Because this is a call for you to trust his call. This is a call for you to trust him. To be obedient to him. To step beyond our concerns 
our fears, our prejudices, our you fill in the blank. And to lean into the reality of Ananias being sent to Saul, and you'll see a man sent to his enemy to declare the Savior. The gospel is wider than you think. And it's much wider than you're comfortable with. We have to reconcile that with our fears and our excuses and come to obedience. Friends, who has God put in your life that needs to hear about Jesus but you're afraid of? Who has God put in your life that needs to hear Jesus but you're nervous about? Who has God put in your life that needs to hear about Jesus that you might even believe they don't deserve to hear about Him? If you can't answer that, you need to be more realistic. For we are all more judgmental than we put on. Amen? Thanks, Elijah. He was bold. We're all more judgmental than we think about. God has surrounded us with people who, if we're honest, we're afraid of, we're nervous about, we don't think they deserve it. And when we believe these things, we minimize the gospel, we put it in a box that salvation is for people who are like me and for people who are I'm comfortable with. Jesus came for white, normal, middle-class people who look like this. Friends, the gospel is deeper than you can imagine and wider than you are comfortable with. So what does Ananias do? Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Friends, as we lean into Acts 9, you see the story of Saul, a man that at least on paper, if you'd have known him, you'd have thought, this guy is far, far from deserving the gospel. And yet, the gospel redeems him. This man who writes 13 books in our New Testament, God uses him greatly. And it's wider than you're comfortable with because it shows up to Ananias and says, hey, go to this man who's killing people and testify to who I am. I I don't know how much Ananias prayed. I don't know how much his knees shook. I do know he was obedient. And in our following of Jesus, we're allowed to be afraid. And our knees are allowed to shake. And we're allowed to pray and struggle. But we're called to be obedient. Gospel's deeper than we can imagine. It's wider than we're comfortable with. Watch how this ends in verse 20. And immediately. By the way, this is thematically a theme in the New Testament as you move through Acts. 
Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, imagine that. You're sitting in a synagogue on a Saturday worshiping, and this guy walks in, and you think, He's going to bind us. He's going to kill us. He's going to tear us all apart. He comes in, He's the Son of God! Whoa. God had a plan for Saul. And Ananias was faithful about pursuing him because God called him to. Friends, the longer we lean into the book of Acts, these themes play out. The gospel doesn't call us to safety. It doesn't call us to comfort. It doesn't call us to fulfill the American dream. It calls us to be obedient and to tell people whose lives seem far, far, far from the truth about the one who would pay the price, about the one who could redeem all of their mistakes, about the one who could save them, about the one who could make all of their sin white as snow, the one who could take their sin from them, and as far as the east is from the west, remove it from them so that they could know the one true God and have a relationship with Him. And then send you out to proclaim who He is and what He's done, not to people you're comfortable with, but to people you're not comfortable with, to people who cause you to fear and struggle. The gospel is deeper than you can imagine and wider than you're comfortable with. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to die on a cross for us that we might be redeemed. Thank you for calling Luke to yourself, actually using Paul to do it. It's a crazy story to be said there that Ananias chases Paul who chases Luke. And so we've got a huge chunk of the New Testament because Ananias was faithful. There's a story to be told there. Father, would you call us and make yourself known to us that as you've called us towards obedience, that we would see the depth of the gospel, that it's true for me, that God could redeem all of my past sin in its full and that there's no one in my life who doesn't need desperately your grace, regardless of their baggage, regardless of their background. It's Jesus that saves. It's Jesus that offers redemption. It's Jesus that's our only hope to forgive our sins. Father, in our obedience, would you make us courageous and brave to follow you we can be afraid and our knees can shake. But give us courage to follow You. Because there's a world that needs to hear the message. A world far beyond my happy little bubble. Thank You for Christ. For His suffering, for His death, and for His resurrection. It's in His name we pray. Amen.